Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's show is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. And for those that don't know, we are a fractional new business team built for agencies and marketing service companies exclusively. We've worked with more than 50 agencies. We've run over 7,000 campaigns. We've generated more than 3,000 qualified brand meetings, and we have consumed over 10 billion gallons of coffee. So over the next few months, you might be wondering if you should be selling to people if there is not a good, reasonable expectation that they are looking to buy, things are feeling touchy. Uh, Or you might be worried that if you approach your market in the wrong way, you might damage your brand. And these are all fair concerns, and they're all things that we are thinking a lot about. But at the same time, you know you have to prospect to keep your agency alive and to keep it thriving. And the effect of not doing anything isn't going to play out until 90 or 180 days down the road. And that's where things could lead to complete business stagnation if prospecting is not happening. So how do you balance these challenges? What's the right move in this uncharted territory? And we don't know exactly. But based on our experience, there are things that we are seeing already in the market. And there's things that we are seeing to be really effective both for ourselves and our clients to make sure that this activity is still maintained regardless of how bad this gets. So in the coming months, we are executing a new strategy and approach for our own prospecting and for that of our clients. Some of it is simply accelerating things that we were already planning and other things are approaches that are completely new. So to cover these, we recently did a live training with around 70 agency owners workshopping the strategy, going over it in depth uh, in terms of everything we're doing. And you can get access to that by going to saleschema.com slash crisis prospecting. Again, that's saleschema.com slash crisis prospecting. Some things we covered. We covered why thought leadership very well could be and probably is your highest leverage point right now. And we talked about specific things you can do for your agency to plug yourself into the right audiences right away. Uh, We also talked about repackaging services and positioning to close more deals as opposed to just knee-jerk price reductions and what our, our clients are doing well in that regard. And we also talked about, most importantly, effective crisis prospecting, what we have planned, um, our exact workflow, and actual examples of copy um, in terms of what's good and what we think is not very good right now. So again, to access this training, you can go to saleschema.com slash crisis prospecting. Again, that's saleschema.com slash crisis prospecting, one word. Today, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Cloudways. Cloudways is a managed cloud hosting platform that simplifies the agency hosting experience. The platform allows agencies to focus on their growth and have complete peace of mind with 24-7 support and flexibility to scale. Do you run an agency or have a mission-critical website? Then visit cloudways.com and use promo code DAN25. Again, that's D-A-N-25. That's a promo code exclusively for the Digital Agency Growth Podcast listeners to receive 25% off your first three months. Today on the podcast, we have Carl Sakis. Carl is the, the head agency consultant and executive coach with his own company, Sakis & Co. 
He works with digital agency owners to take control of their businesses, focusing on conquering growth pains and increasing profits. Full disclosure, this was round two of our interview. The first one uh, didn't work due to technical difficulties first and only, hopefully only time that happens, but I think it was well worth it because we covered lots of new ground on the second attempt. We went into just really tactical areas that I, I know that I can run with in my own business right away, and I think you're going to get a whole lot of this too. Some concepts we covered are the idea of an agency owner as a maximizer versus an optimizer and why the latter tends to be less stressed. Uh, we talked about retention points and, and key metrics and what Carl aims for with all of his clients. Uh, we talked about the idea of delegation and the CCAP and what that means in terms of cheapest, competent, and available person. Uh, and then we also talked about level off points and who to hire when and, and really helpful, not one size fits all blueprint sort of stuff, but rough guidelines for the types of models that that are working effectively um, in a wide variety of agencies in terms of what to do when you're at stage A versus B versus C. Uh, so without further ado, please give it up for Carl Sagas. Carl, thanks for coming on the podcast for the second time. <laughs> Dan, great to be here. For background, we we did an interview. It was great. And Carl got to be the first and luckiest guest where we lost the entire thing due to the technology gods somehow. So It, it happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so hopefully, you know, we can we can tread on new ground and, and make an even better episode. And whatever you know, whatever spirit in the technology world is listening to the old one, I hope they can they can enjoy the legacy version. There we go. Yeah. So so Carl, uh, obviously, you, you know, you're focusing on agencies. You've you, you've yeah. been with an agency in the past. As usual, I'd love to just hear about your background and kind of how you got to the point of starting your consultancy. As a consultant and coach, my specialty is helping agencies conquer growing pains around their team, around their clients, around their structure, uh, ultimately everything that's getting in the way of running the agency they want. Most recently, I served as a director of operations at a digital agency, did similar work at another, so I've been an agency PM, director of client services, director of operations. Going further back, I was a web designer, uh, learned HTML in high school, started building websites in the days of dial-up. And uh, even further than that, you know, business-wise, uh, my parents were both career army officers. They had a small real estate property management business after they retired, and they put the kids to work, like when we were in elementary school, helping with that. So I've been, been in business for a long time. Uh, and you know, I, I feel lucky that uh, area where a lot of my clients struggle in running their agency are things that come naturally, and I can make life better for them. Yeah, and one consistent theme that that I see a lot, and I think plays out all over the map, is this idea of of an outsider being able to give information and and help help win. And I think that. Yeah. Agencies face that themselves when they're selling to brands. Why should it just another agency person that thinks they're Don Draper trying to give us a bunch of great ideas? And then I, I face that selling to agencies for what we do. I, how can an outsider sell for us? And my guess is you encounter that too. You know, how can this consultant come in and tell us how we should position ourselves and grow? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and what, what the argument is for, for outsiders. I mean, ultimately, uh, no matter how smart you are, we don't have perspective on ourselves, or, or at least in that sense. So for instance, I do agency consulting and executive coaching for owners and leaders at agencies, but I have my own coach because I can't coach myself. 
And in fact, I have several people advising me. So uh, it helps to get that outside perspective. You know, there's the idea of you, you can't see the label when you're inside the bottle, whatever metaphor you might want to use. Yeah. And, and I think that an, another, another thing is just, there's just so many voices out there now. And uh, yep. for, and this is all across, across the map. And I think especially in the agency space, cause there's just so many more agencies. And with that, there's a lot, a lot more voices, including ours, you know, giving advice, talking to people about what, what they should do. So, and, and you've also, you know, you mentioned the coaching is very, very important to you and you have a few different people advising you. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how do you, how do you manage those voices? <laughs> how do you decide who to listen to when, how do you, what do you do when they step on each other's toes? Um, that's something I've encountered too myself. Yeah. Well, you know, some of it is different people have different expertise. So for instance, you know, when I'm working with my financial planner, you know, his focus is finances. Uh, although he does have a bit of a coaching approach, you know, it's sort of the, what is the life you want? And then how do we make finances help you get there? Um, you know, as opposed to talking to my therapist, like that's different. Yeah. Uh, you know, or speaking with my life coach, who's a bit more holistic, you know, getting into business, leadership, relationships, health, things like that. So, you know, in general, I, I guess I'm integrating their advice, but sometimes it's helpful to talk through the same thing with a couple different people to get additional perspectives. Part of it also is that each, each person has a different approach, which I think, you know, to your question of how do you find, there are, there are a lot of voices out there, you find the person who's right for you, I mean, read their marketing. Does it resonate? I mean, there, there, there are some people out there who would be, uh, you know, a perfect match for some and a terrible match for others and vice versa. So, um, you know, you have to find the person who's right for you. Right, right. And I, I do want to get to the stuff that you actually focus on every day and, and scale and, and those important questions. But this is just yeah. really interesting to me. I guess one, one thing is when, when do you feel like, somebody's outgrown a coach or consultant, you know, at what point, because if you go to college, you go to college for four years or maybe, maybe eight or 10 if you're in graduate school, but there is a point where it ends. At what point do you think that, that it's time to reassess, you know, a coaching or consulting relationship? It's going to vary by client, vary by coach. I, I would say if it feels like, you know, you're, you're having a call, you're having a check-in and it seems like several calls in a row, you haven't made progress. Ideally, the coach is going to call out that you're not making progress and work on resetting things. Uh, but if they don't, then you need to do it. Um, for instance, I worked with a client a couple years ago where she had said, you know, I want to change. Um, she had found me through an event. Uh, she actually completed my coaching pre-intake survey at 4 a.m. In, in the morning slash at night. Uh, it's like, you know, she needed help, Right. Uh, and we talked about some of her challenges and where she wanted to go, and she definitely needed help. I was a little skeptical about her taking action or not, but I figured, well, you know what? This matches what I can do. Let me, let me help her. And unfortunately, it became clear that there were certain challenges that I couldn't help her overcome. For instance, she just wasn't comfortable delegating. You know, if you, delegation is hard. It's, you know, people are like, oh, just delegate. There are actually 15 steps to successful delegation. You don't have to go through them every single time once you have people on your team, but you know, it's a challenge if you're starting from scratch. The broader issue is that she just didn't want to. Yeah. You know, even if someone were competent and trustworthy to do it, she still wouldn't trust them. And then on top of that, she was just so overloaded 
you know, one of my assignments as one of her monthly goals, you know, typically we're doing fairly strategic goals month to month. In her case, because she hadn't blogged in several years, I had an assignment of write a blog post. Like it didn't have to be perfect. It didn't have to, it just needed to be live. And she never did it. Yeah. And, you know, we rolled it over trying to make it a bit more bite size. Uh, and ultimately after, you know, typically I'll work with coaching clients six to 12 months. I have some who are four years into coaching. Uh, but ultimately after four months, I was like, this, this isn't working. I'm, I'm doing what I can to help. Um, you seem to be stuck. Uh, you know, I have clients who call me their agency therapist. I'm not an actual therapist. Sure. Uh, you know, she needed help that I wasn't able to provide. Yeah. And I think that's, that's so interesting that and I, we, we had a, a more of a coaching model in the early days of sales schema. And then we moved on to kind of more of a done for you model. But I remember back in those days, it seemed like everything eventually kind of just boiled down to therapy, <laughs> you know, well, it's like, why didn't you write the article? Because I was, I was, uh, stressed. Why were you stressed because of this? And then eventually you're just becoming a therapist. And I was like, I'm not, not equipped to do this. Um, but, but you know, I think that what, what I really like about your model from what I know about it and from, from other better coaches in other areas is it seems like the people that I trust to, to, to help as an outsider are not the ones saying, here's the silver bullet. If you work with me, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do to win. It's more like, I'm going to be there for you and we're going to do this together and you're going to do it better and faster and more effectively than if you do it by yourself, basically. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think of my approach as a, as an iterative and adaptive approach. The, the initials I use around understanding each client's, I call it your VGRs, values, goals, and resources. So I'm not saying there is one way to do everything for every agency. There are certain best practices that make sense. You know, yeah. ideally your net profit margins are 20 to 30%. More than that means you're probably understaffed and your team's overworked. Less than 20%, you've got profit leaks and you can fix those profit leaks and make things better. But, you know, most things are, are complicated. For instance, say, you know, thinking about account management. Do you have a dedicated account management team or do you deputize people as account managers? There are pros and cons to, to those approaches. It's not like here's the one way to do everything. In part because each, each agency is unique, each owner or owners, you know, unique, um, and employees are too. So, you know, there's not really a one size fits all. There's some people who claim there is. Um, and if you're, if you don't have any challenges with things, then that can work, but yeah. life's complicated. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's very, uh, attractive as a sales proposition to sell a one size fits all. Yeah, you know, but it's because it, that's what that's what flies off the shelves, but it, it rarely, if if ever, works. Um, and I, I, it was interesting what you're talking about about profit margin because I think that if especially newer agency owners, you just assume you want to maximize your profit, right? That's just the right. cardinal rule of business. But it's an interesting angle that yeah, you might you might be understaffed in this particular situation because we're not dealing with an infinite scalability sort of situation in the agency world. Exactly. Um, you know, the model I think about that is, and, and this is something I think about when I speak with prospective clients when they reach out, is the idea of maximizer versus optimizer. If you're a maximizer, the goal is to get as much as possible regardless of the cost. It's like more, more, more. For instance, an uh, agency owner in Canada reached out. He had doubled his agency from one to two million dollars in revenue in four months. But the way he got there was that for four months, he and his team worked 100 hours a week per person. And now he was wondering why people were quitting. 
So, oh, and then he was like, well, I want to grow further. I want a 5X in the next year. And I'm like, that is highly unlikely. Uh, and I was like, what if you doubled in the year or maybe, maybe tripled? And he was like, triple, I'd be okay with that. But if I doubled, that would be boring. And, and oh, oh, and he was like, you know, but it's important for me to retain the team. And I'm like, 5x growth and strong team retention, 5x in a year, yeah. those really don't go together. Yeah. And, yeah. and then he said, well, what if the retention is like just good enough to hit that 5x growth? And I'm like, mm, no, I, you have a character problem. If you're like, oh, well, I want to take yeah. care of the team oh, wait, if I'm going to burn through them, if that means I hit the 5X, then I don't care what happens to them. That's not, not someone I want to help. Right. And a lot of this is, is also seems to tie into the culture of the, the vertical that we're in, right? I mean, yep. if you're people that work at agencies, we're talking about creatives and accounts people. It's yep. not the same organism that's going to Silicon Valley, you know, to, to grind hundred hour, $200 weeks to change the world. It's, it's a creative person. It's somebody that needs space, needs a little bit more time. So I, my experience trying to make those people, you know, conform to a buzzsaw schedule is, yeah. is an uphill battle. Yeah. Well, and the incentives and rewards are different. You know, right. a exactly. friend's brother worked at a startup, they went public and he, he got, you know, his, ultimately his incentives were worth about $750,000. Right. You know, and, and, and he wasn't one of the first employees. You know, if you would have been sooner, it would have been millions. Um, so, you know, not bad. Of course, you know, $750,000 in the Bay Area buys maybe a one-bedroom apartment. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's relative. I, I mentioned maximizer versus optimizer. Optimizer, and that optimizers tend to be a better match in my client advising. They still want to grow, but they're thinking about the ROI. What yeah. is it going to cost in terms of the demands on people, the financial costs, you know, the emotional energy to get there? So, yeah. for instance, you know, if the owner I mentioned in Canada, you know, if it was like, let's grow 5x over five years, sure, that, that's doable. Or if he had said, I'd like to double in the coming year if XYZ, or it's Canada XYZ. Right. Um, then that's more of an optimizer approach and I can help. Yeah. But if you're a maximizer, there are plenty of consultants and coaches who are glad to work with maximizers, but that's not me. Right. Right. And then in those situations, it becomes almost entirely, you know, a sales focus in my experience, right. Or largely so. And yeah. obviously yeah. we're the name of our company sales schema. We're all, we're all about selling, but I think that, that can create um, it can it can create a lot of stress honestly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you can get it, to, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. And and I mean that that's um, I'll early on ask prospective clients and then we dig deeper. People become clients around where do they want to go? Right. You know, what is their end game? Are they leaning toward running a lifestyle agency, grow and get well compensated, or is it more about building an equity agency? They have an exit in mind and then they're going to do something else. You know, that's helpful to know. Also keep in mind, I mean, you know, as people are listening, just because a company looks shiny on the outside doesn't mean things are going smoothly on the inside. Yeah. You know, your choices have impacts. I have an article about the idea of you are the dictator of your agency. That is, if you're the owner, as long as you're not asking people to do something illegal or hopefully you're not asking them to do something unethical, 
Your employees have to do what you say. Now, you bear the consequences of that. If you're pushing them too hard, even if it is, you know, legal and ethical, people may not stick around. But ultimately, you have full power over what the priorities are, but you also face the consequences. Uh, The example I was thinking of around perhaps an excessive focus on sales, I had done a Neuroscope project with an agency that is one of the largest partners for a particular software platform. And, um, you know, strong reputation. What I found, though, is that they had some challenges. Uh, For instance, I I mentioned benchmarking. You know, ideally, you are retaining 80 to 90% of your clients each year if you're on a recurring model. And so that is you're losing no more than 10 to 20%. I mentioned that, that stat kind of casually to the COO of the agency, and the CEO, uh, COO started laughing. <laughs> I was like, well, the, that wasn't a joke. What, what, what's funny? The response, their turnover instead of 10 to 20% was 100%. Mm-hmm. They look great on the outside, but no one was sticking around. They had some clients who stayed for multiple years, but most people were staying for less than a year. And it so in a situation like that, and maybe other situations, what, what, why are clients leaving? What are the common reasons that, that you're seeing? In that particular case, there was enormous pressure from the owner, or the ownership team, on the sales team to get anyone in the door. But there wasn't enough focus on the quality of the leads, the quality of the prospects, and then quality of the, the incoming clients. Mm-hmm. So basically, it was, you know, it was sort of a, an Enron situation of like, we, we got to get the numbers up regardless of the quality. Right. Um, for, for other agencies, you know, and, and that's a somewhat extreme case, 100% turnover. Ooh. Um, you know, when clients leave, uh, the model that I think about is this idea of warmth and competence comes from the book, The Human Brand by Chris Malone and Susan Fisk. So competence is what agencies tend to focus on. That is, did we get the job done? Did we meet their marketing or creative or design or development or PR related goals? So that's competence. Did we get the job done? Warmth, though, is about did you make the client feel special? Did you make them feel unique? Did you make them feel valued? Rather than just, oh, well, we did this because, you know, you're, you're paying us. Ideally, you're going to deliver a high warmth and high competence client experience. That's why, for instance, I limit my active client count when it comes to consulting and coaching. Obviously, if people are buying an information product, that's, that's different. It's more of a customer relationship than a, than a client relationship. Um, so, it, you know, if you were focusing on warmth and competence, retention tends to be good. Uh, if you focus on, say, just competence, but people don't feel special, you know, you make a mistake and they're going to leave. At, l- at least if you have high warmth and you have a stumble on competence, they're more likely to give you a chance. Not forever, but they'll give you a chance. Yeah, let's dig into that a bit. So what, yeah. are, what are some of that low-hanging fruit? What are the things that can add a lot of warmth with, with minimal effort <laughs> that you see your better clients doing? Some proxies that I look at for how strong are your client relationships? A few things. One, do you you know your client's boss? You know, your day-to-day contacts boss, have you met them? Do you know them? Do they know your name? Or are you going solely through the one contact? You ideally want to have multiple points of contact within the client organization. Because if one person leaves, you don't want that one person to have been your sole connection. 
to the client. So that's something that helps on warmth and competence. Another would be, do you know the name of your day-to-day contacts spouse or partner? Do you know the name of their pets? Do you know the name of their kids if they have kids or, or, or pets? I would say that, you know, knowing that info doesn't guarantee that it's a good relationship, but I bet if I were to talk to your client and say, you know, do you feel like your account manager or whomever knows you, if you don't know the personal info, they're probably not going to say, yes, the agency and the account manager knows me. Uh, you know, so the, those are those are some small examples. I mean, even down to like, do you know what their birthday is? Yeah. You know what their favorite, you know, favorite snack is. So you can, you know, send them some Cheez-Its or send them, you know, or have a Kit Kat for them at, at your yeah. next person meeting. For us, we, we've systematized gift giving, especially when clients win an account from, you know, leads that we've gotten. So we'll send yeah. champagne, coffee, coffees for closers sort of jokes. So we'll, we'll, we've sent right. coffee makers before. Right. So that's, and to me, it makes, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, and the key thing, of course, is customizing it for each, each client. You know, for right. instance, you know, if they're in New England, don't give them a Starbucks gift card. Give them a, a Dunkin' Donuts, or I guess they've rebranded Dunkin', gift card, you know, uh, or if they're in a city that is all about independent coffee shops, also don't give them a Starbucks card, Uh, you know, or if they're, uh, you know, say they're e-commerce oriented, probably don't want to give them an Amazon card because they probably don't like Amazon. Yeah, they probably shop there, but, you know, they're maybe not a huge fan uh, of the company. So, like, it's, it's small things make an impact. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing you talked about earlier were, were the, the 15 delegation steps, and we probably don't have time to get through all 15, but I, I guess I'm curious to know what, what are the sort of underappreciated steps or aspects of delegation? that. that mm. So, you know, thinking about that, that piece, um, you know, part of it is first, do you even need help with something? So there's that mindset of like, wait a minute, I, I need help. But then you also have to think about what are the pieces involved? Uh, what's the skill set? How is someone else's work going to get integrated back into the rest of the workflow? Who are the right people? Um, my, my shorthand when it comes to delegation is what I call the CCAP, the cheapest competent available person. So if you're assigning something out, whether you're a project manager or you're an agency owner who's assigning something in the team or you're an account manager referring things internally, the idea of the cheapest competent available person, say you've got two people. If they are identically competent to do whatever the task is, assigned to the cheaper one. If you've got two people and they're competent, same price, but only one is available, then it goes to the available person. Um, If you have someone who's super expensive, but they're the only one available and the only one competent, well, it's going to them. And the place where I see agency owners especially, but uh, non-owner leaders as well struggle, is that they are doing lower value activities. I, I think of it as, you know, if you're an owner, you should be doing what I call $1,000 an hour activities, things that only you can do. You're not literally billing your clients $1,000 an hour, but imagine it's worth that much. That would shift a lot of things about what you do and don't delegate. For instance, you know, loading your expense report not a $1,000 an hour activity. It needs to happen, but you know what? You could delegate that to someone on the team that you're paying $20 an hour to do. 
On the other hand, doing lunch with a potential referral partner that could produce six to seven figures in revenue over time, that's a better use of your time between the two. And sometimes you have to choose. You know, it, it doesn't, uh, you know, you're not working in a vacuum. Stuff has to get done. And also, if you want to do a lower value activity because you like doing it, that's okay. I'm, I'm not saying stop doing it. Just be intentional about it. Right. And with that in mind, I'd love to get more tactical there. Are there any other tasks that you see you see commonly being done that should not be done? Hmm. Booking travel. You know, I, I work with a travel agent who charges $35 a booking for booking the flight. Usually, she will find a lower price or a better routing or connection. Or, you know what, maybe it's, you know, roughly the same as I originally found. If something goes wrong mid-trip, I can text her and she fixes it. At one point, I had a trip to, uh, to Chicago, and I get a, an email from the airline the, uh, the night before saying, due to XYZ, we have canceled your flight. You know, stand by. It's like, flight's in the morning. Like, what are we going to do? Um, so I, I texted my travel agent. And she ended up spending like 40, 45 minutes on hold with the airline because she wasn't able to do it through the automated system, dealing with it, and she fixed it. Right. That was 40 minutes, 45 minutes the night before the trip in the morning that I didn't have to spend myself. I was still concerned about what was going to happen because, you know, still, still an issue. But I could work on other things rather than be on the phone on hold. Yeah. It's almost like there's this whole like Harry Potter underworld of people that can help you with specific things that just a lot of agency owners and just everyday people aren't really aware of, you know, that going to experts. I mean, yeah. uh, her, her name is Silka easy at easy to travel.com. Uh, she's been in the travel industry for, I don't know, like 20, 30 years. Like she knows all the shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, or, you know, thinking about delegating to your accountant. I, I, I just got an update earlier this week that my corporate tax return is ready. Uh, I could learn how to do that myself, but why? Yeah. It's not a good use of my time. Right. And I think the, the other offender that we see a lot isn't so much owners doing things, but them delegating, yeah, well, it fits with your CCAP heuristic, them delegating those things to the wrong people where you have like a high level account manager that's dealing with travel or you have, you know, in, in previous lives I would do the books, but I was supposed to be in sales, you know? So yeah, yeah they saved a lot of, a little bit of money on an account, but that was time I could have been closing deals, et cetera. And, and of course you, you have options. So for instance, I, I interviewed Jay Bear who runs convince and convert. I, uh, you know, when we spoke uh, for that particular interview several years ago, he mentioned that he likes sending the invoices because, you know, it's fun and it's nice to see, okay, you know, where, where are things flowing? So if you're choosing to do it because you like doing it, that's fine. You know, if you love looking at travel options, okay, go, go ahead and do it. Yeah. Um, the key is being intentional rather than following, you know, well, we've always done it this way. This is how it has to happen. And that's part of where outside perspective helps. For instance, client was saying, you know, they're spending 20000 a month on various internal PPC efforts and they have an employee running it uh, and the employee running it is fairly junior um, you know, and they're doing okay. Um, you know, part of my perspective was normally an employee with that level of seniority would not be managing that ad spend. 
internally? Sure. I think one issue a lot is that, is that pretty much everybody's on the same page with this argument, I, I would guess. But the problem becomes the cost of, of hiring somebody to handle that specific thing. Yes. Maybe they're not available, but that one time you can't reach them again. You've got to go through the same process again. So then you just say, screw it. I'll get somebody, somebody to handle this. So I guess one, one thing, one new advantage of this internet era is that there's more and more of these managed services that will handle the downtime risk and take care of it. Um, design pickle comes to mind, handling random design needs. And then there was one called WP Curve that I used for a while that handles mm-hmm. random WordPress but you know, issues and fixes and stuff. They've since been bought yeah. by GoDaddy and they're not around really. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any are there any common managed services that you're finding to work really well that people, you know, might need to know about or or, or maybe a better question is if you don't want to get that tactical, mm-hmm. just what what the right way to kind of think about these services is. It, one of the big things is, you know, we're thinking about cheapest competent available person. Is this something that could happen in a vacuum? For instance, is it something design-wise that if you give the designer the relevant brand guidelines and the creative brief, that's all they need, good to go? Or is this a situation where context matters and you want to be working with the same person or same company every time? So, you know, for instance, if it's something about uh, you know, enhancing a list to like look up certain information. Mm, that's relatively straightforward. And there's certain things people can do to automate that. Uh, but that doesn't require quite as much context. On the other hand, you know, when I'm designing something new, I work with the same designer, you know, rather than having to re-explain things every time. Uh, or, you know, my marketing strategy, freelancer. Like, I've been working with her for six, almost seven years. I don't have to re-explain every time. Um, so I think some of it will depend on, on the individual activity. Do you need contacts? Then work with the same person. Uh, if it doesn't matter, then, you know, then it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, thinking about that, I'll get questions around virtual assistants. You know, is it time to hire a VA? Or I, I think maybe I should hire a VA, uh, but I'm not sure what I would have them do. And I have several articles on that. Once you have a VA and they're good, you will have plenty of stuff for them to do. You know, um, the key is finding that competent, versatile person. Right. You know, a, a good VA takes initiative, they're conscientious, and they learn quickly. Yeah, and in my experience, getting that person is sometimes doing things that run contrary to what, to what you think you would do. So, for example, if your Upwork is a great place to, to, to look, there's amazing high-level talent, there's also people that aren't so good and then there's people kind of gaming that system. But what I found is that if you can throttle the filters so that you're getting somebody that's like just started on Upwork, they've got crazy amounts of experience from a previous life. They might not have that many ratings. They might have yeah. like two or three other clients as opposed to dozens. That's right. the ideal person. But what most people do is they, they go for the person that's gaming the system and basically has like an Upwork or whatever hamster farm of dozens of clients and, that's where you, you have a bad experience. So that's, that's really helpful. Um, with the time we have left, this is probably enough to fill another five episodes, but I love well, to talk about uh, scale. I'll come back again, you know. Exactly, yeah, for sure. But for, for the time we have, um, I'd love to, to talk a little bit about level off points in terms of scale. And there's an article we'll link up in the show notes, but you have a great article talking about what, when, what agencies should look to hire at certain points. So I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah. So, and, and for sure, this will vary by agency. Uh, you know, for instance, if you are a 100% outsourcing model, you're probably going to have internal project manager and or account manager or multiple of those. Uh, and then you might be outsourcing all of the implementation. You know, so in that case, the core team might be fairly small. Um, but let, let's say you're doing things largely in-house. You know, there is a trend toward agencies doing, I think of it as the front end only or the back end only. Back end would be the implementation work. Front end is the client facing side around account management, project management, and strategy. And of course, sales and marketing as well. But let's say you're doing all of it. If you're doing all of it, one to seven people, you'd use what I'd call a functional structure. Everyone is doing a bit of everything. You know, your uh, account manager is also doing strategy if you have an account manager. Your designer is also doing project management. Uh, as the owner, you might be doing some of all of that, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Um, when you get to 8 to 12 people, you can start specializing. You can hire a dedicated project manager. You might hire an account manager. Uh, do consider that, you know, my model for that, account management, project management, your SMEs, subject matter experts, strategists, biz dev and operations. Six different roles. Consider the point of each one, because when you're smaller, you're going to combine them. Account management is about keeping the clients happy and typically upselling them more work. Project management is about getting the work done smoothly and profitably, and that could be for retainers too, not just projects. Um, mostly internal, though there may be a client-facing piece. Your subject matter experts are designers, developers, copywriters, analysts, roles that are all about doing their craft all day long. You know, they tend to be pretty billable. Um, then you've got strategists who are like a, a bit of a mix. They're technically a subject matter expert, but they tend to be very client facing based on the nature of their work. So that's, you know, a bucket. You've got your biz dev people doing both marketing and sales. And then you have your operations people who are tying it all together. So, you know, as you get to 8 to 12, you can start splitting those out. Maybe you make it so that your designers aren't also client-facing all the time, which your designers will be thrilled with that because they get to focus on design most of the time rather than getting interrupted all day. Um, next break point is around 15 people. That would be looking at building out a dedicated marketing and sales team. Um, and of course, you know, you have to decide what is the right model. You know, the stronger your marketing, the easier the sales. On the other hand, if you hate sales, you might need to hire that salesperson as the fifth team member. Or if you can't afford to hire someone as an employee, maybe get your help. And, uh, you know, rather than trying to do it all themselves, owners are perhaps the ideal person to do sales. But if you're an owner and you hate selling, don't do it. Like you're not going to do it well if you resent doing it. Get help from right. and be, ready, and be ready to invest in training somebody and getting them support, basically. Yeah. And know that that's going to take a little while. <laughs> to it get is it not. Right. It's not going to magically happen. I, I mean, if if your goal is to hire someone as an employee, but you don't have a lot of money and you plan to get them ramped up, I mean, you're going to spend at least ten hours a week training and coaching them. Right. right. You know. And you can fix that by hiring a sales expert, either internally or on an outsourced basis. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. There's always a trade-off. 
Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that a big part of that trade-off is also getting used to selling in a new way. You know, so yeah. if if an agency's built themselves on referrals and they that's not enough anymore, if it is fantastic, that's great. But for most agencies, there's there's a breaking point. Um, right. Getting used to that new process is going to take some some time and some growing pains. And I, I think yeah. the mistake we see a lot of the time is trying to get somebody to jump into the driver's seat before there's a car built for them. Right. Uh, and that's that's obviously where we come in and we, we help get opportunities to the owner or the incumbent person um, so that that process can be built first, basically. Which makes it a lot easier. You know, if, if the owner wants to have the closer conversation, mm-hmm. the lead and then the prospect need to come from somewhere. They're not just going to magically happen. Right, right. A couple more breakpoints around 25. It's time to have directors and teams. Uh, you know, so rather than uh, the owner managing everyone themselves or maybe having a couple deputies, you can organize it different ways. You know, is it sort of silo based, you know, you've got the SEO team versus the paid team, uh, or is it a bit more cross-functional? You've got account management, maybe you have creative that covers a variety of things, maybe you've got development. There are different ways to do it. You know, there's not one way to do it. But importantly, you need to start breaking things into smaller chunks, breaking the agency into teams and sub-teams around 25 also, I hope you hire an HR person around 30 or 40. I recently spoke with the HR manager recently hired at an agency that has, you know, like roughly 75 people. They waited a little too long on that. I, and I mean, the new HR manager, I think, has tons of job security because there's plenty to do. Yeah. It's harder. It's harder to do it later rather than sooner. Um, And then when you get to 50 plus people, say you're looking like 50 and 100, uh, you know, it's time for VPs and a C-level team uh, because you need to to organize things. Uh, You can't have everyone reporting to you or, you know, reporting to one other person. You need that structure. That, that makes a lot of sense. And there's, there's a lot more to, to cover there and we'll, we'll be sure to get that linked up. Um, Carl is kind of a parting question that, that I often ask, what, what are you seeing out there? Like what are the, what are the big trends you're seeing that you think people should pay, be paying more attention to? One of those big trends is around that front end and back end agency idea I mentioned. Do you want to be client, thinking about your in-house employees do you want to solely do the client facing and project management side, or do you want to do more of the back end, basically white label work for other agencies? There are pros and cons to both. If you're doing the front end side, the margins can be higher uh, because you're charging retail to, to clients. On the other hand, your team is going to be more expensive. You're hiring more experienced people and you've got to do all of the marketing and sales efforts. If you don't like marketing and sales and you enjoy execution, doing the white label side might make sense because that's more about building those partnership relationships to get work referred into you, but the margins are worse. The challenge is when you try to do both, the, whether you call it a full service model or otherwise, if you have a surge in new business, your delivery team is struggling to keep up. And if you have a drop in new business because maybe they have not engaged sales schema yet, then, then you're struggling because now you're paying people and you don't have work for them to do. When you decouple it into front end and back end, it can make things a bit smoother, but you have to make sure that that's aligned with your long-term goals. So thinking about front end, back end, or both, 
uh, in terms of client-facing work. The other trend I notice is one that I've seen through the CMO Mastermind I gr group that I run through a marketing association here in North Carolina. These are CMOs anywhere from 10 million to billions of dollars in revenue at their companies. So marketing budget, you know, anywhere from hundreds of thousands to, you know, tens of millions, if not more. And one of the themes that keeps coming up in the group, you know, it's like I'm the fly on the wall. You know, I am not selling to them because I only work with agencies, right? So um, the things that keep coming up, one of the big themes is around attribution, revenue attribution. Which marketing activities are driving each dollar of revenue? Because their CFO wants to know when the, when the CMO is like, we need another million dollars for this initiative. The CFO is going to be like, well, okay, what's the ROI? If the CMO can't answer that, and the agency or agencies they're working with can't help them figure that out, they're going to go with someone who does understand attribution. And I don't hear most agencies talking about attribution. So your clients care. Are you going to be there when they ask that question? Right, right. And that's, there's probably a whole other episode on, on attribution and also the, the fluff that often gets brought into various quests to find attribution, you know? Yeah. So that's, that's probably worthy of a whole other episode, but uh, for now, Carl, uh, thank you so much. How can people get in touch with you? Visit sakisandcompany.com. That's S is in Sam, A-K-A-S-A-N-D company.com. I'm also on Twitter at Carl Sakis. Uh, if this advice was helpful, you can go to the website, opt in for my ebook uh, and get ongoing tips, um, emails that several people have referred to as one of the only emails that they read every single time. So yeah. check it out. And, uh, you know, if, if you'd like one-on-one -on -one help, glad to do an exploratory call to see if it's a fit, but all kinds, hundreds of articles of free advice. Awesome. Yeah, great stuff, Carl. We'll get that all linked up. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks, Dan. Thanks again for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. Thank you to our sponsors, first and foremost being our company. Uh, and again, as I mentioned at the beginning, in the coming months, we are executing a new strategy and approach for our own prospecting and for that of our clients uh, based on everything that's happening. And based on the fact that you might be wondering how to prospect effectively, how to make sure you're not hurting your brand while knowing that it's something that must be done to keep your agency alive and thriving. So there's a lot of new things we're doing uh, in the training. We are covering thought leadership, how you can approach it and why it's your highest leverage point. We're talking about repackaging uh, instead of knee-jerk price reductions, and we're actually getting into actual copy and actual examples. So if you want to get your hands on that training, you want to get access to it, you can go to saleschema.com slash crisis prospecting. Again, that's saleschema.com slash crisis prospecting, one word. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Cloudways. Cloudways is a managed cloud hosting platform that is loved by agencies around the world. With Cloudways, agencies can focus on growing their clients while we take care of all hosting-related complexities. Cloudways is offering an exclusive discount for the Digital Agency Growth Podcast listeners. Visit cloudways.com and use the promo code DAN25, again that's D-A-N-25, to receive 25% off for three months on the hosting plan of your choice. At the risk of sounding like everybody else in your inbox, and on the so-called airwaves, stay safe, stay healthy, watch the news, but don't watch too much of the news. Thanks again, and until next time.